Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. Among the many battles that Israel is fighting now, and it is, of course, fighting a war in the south against Gaza, a tit-for-tat war against Hezbollah in the north, against some Syrian positions in the north, against the Houthis in Yemen in the far southeast, and uh, more to the immediate east, of course, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, is heating up dramatically as well. So Israel militarily has its hands full, but it also has its hands full telling the story of why this battle against Hamas is morally justified, why, in fact, it's necessary for the Jewish state to continue to survive, and I would say even further, for the Jewish state to deserve to continue to survive. One of the people at the helm of telling this story internationally is IDF Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, who runs the IDF spokesman's unit that deals with populations outside Israel. I got together with him at his office on the army base uh, just yesterday to have a conversation about the work that he and his colleagues are doing. And when I say colleagues, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of people in this building, all wearing green. Uh, I was the only person there wearing civilian clothes. It's a beehive of activity of young people still doing their mandatory military service and a significant number of people who've been called up in the reserves, sent not to the front in Gaza or in the north, uh, but to fight this battle here because of their skills technologically, diplomatically, or whatever the case may be. I wanted to speak to Lieutenant Colonel Hecht about a variety of issues. I wanted to talk about the humanitarian aid, what's happening, why is it necessary, and so on and so forth. I wanted to speak about our relationship with the Americans and what it does and does not mean, and also, the issue of the 47-minute video that Israel has shown numerous journalists that so far has not leaked out but is likely to leak out and which Israeli psychologists are already warning people, adults and children, do not watch it. If you manage to get a copy of this video, do not watch it because you will never, ever be able to unsee the things that you will have seen and it can cause you tremendous damage. Um, I don't know if I would watch it or not if I actually got a copy of it, uh, but the warning is definitely worth taking very seriously. And anyway, I met in the middle of the day with Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht at a very busy office in a very busy army base in a very, very busy time, and we are delighted at Israel from the inside to share that conversation with you now. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, the IDF international spokesperson. Born and raised in Glasgow, grew up in the Golan Heights once I immigrated, now live in Tel Aviv with my wife and two daughters. Military background was, uh, I 
joined the air defense back in the day. It used to be Vulcan guns on APCs. Most of my time was uh, in the Judea and Samaria and the Lebanese border. At some point, because I knew English and they wanted me to stay on, I got sent to the American military to do their company commander's course. Came back, did some work together with the Americans in developing capabilities. Uh, worked up the ranks all the way to battalion command. Uh, also uh, operational uh, battalion. After that, I went to be head of our North American branch in our strategic division. Which means what? It means I was in charge of all the military defense relationships with the American administration between 2013 and 2017. That would be the Obama administration. The Obama administration. And uh, after that, I did all the foreign policy for the Air Force, retired, went to work in big business, and I got called back to do this job. How long ago? About a year and a half ago. Yeah, I had no idea it would be so interesting at the end of the day. I'm a man of belief, even though I don't wear a, a yarmulke. But I think God uh, brought me back here. No, I think, by the way, it's a whole other conversation, which is not a Dover Sahel conversation, but there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of belief seeping up through the cracks of Israeli society. There's a woman in the paper I read this week, in Yidio Dachronot, says she's not religious at all, but she does light Shabbat candles. And for the last few weeks, as she lights Shabbat candles, she has read the names of every single one of the 240 captives. Wow. She stands there, she lights the candles, she reads all 240 names, and then Shabbat begins for her. I thought it was very moving. It is. I mean, it's really unbelievable what people are finding speaks to them, moves them, and so on and so forth. But we're going to focus on the work that you're doing now, the critically important work. I mean, we're meeting at your base. We're meeting in your office. So I walked through here. I mean, there's hundreds of soldiers out there. Yes. The one guy not wearing green is me. And I mean, it's, it's a beehive of activity doing critically important work, trying to tell the story that the world needs to understand about the work that is happening inside Israel, the fighting that's going on next to Israel, and so forth. So there's a lot we could talk about. But I want to start with the issue of the humanitarian, the humanitarian aid. And there are two opposite sides, and I'm sure that the reality is somewhere in the middle. But for the people that I talk to, the people that read Israel from the inside, uh, the people that listen to Israel from the inside, the people that write me, talk to me, whatever, I hear two different things. One is, you got to have a ceasefire. I mean, look what's happening in Gaza. The buildings are collapsing. The pieces can go. Hamas is attacking the people that are fleeing. This has got to stop. It's not fair. It's not okay. There's got to be a ceasefire. You also hear... Um, what are you doing? Ceasefire? I mean, when did the United States have a ceasefire against Germany so that they can move things around? The United States have a ceasefire in any other critical battle. You don't do ceasefires in war. And Israel's doing something in the middle. It's not having a ceasefire, but it's saying very much yes, a very emphatic yes, to humanitarian aid. So the first thing I think would be great for people to understand from you is why is the humanitarian aid not only the right thing to do from a humanitarian purpose, but it's, it's, it's an important part of Israel's battle strategy to have the humanitarian aid get in and then tell us some of what the aid is and all that. So Daniel, you hit the nail right on the head and um, that dynamic of balancing between no ceasefire and there's children dying is a balance that we have to dance. And uh, another, another uh, challenging dynamic is the fact that in the tempo of media of the, the youngsters sitting outside, People have a very short memory. They always say it's, it's people. Uh, people have a short memory. So um, everybody in the Israeli side is saying, amplify the tragedy of the seventh of October. But the world that I'm dealing with, you can see that the place that's taken now in the international media is, is not that prominent as it was in the first two or three weeks 
of this war. I'll go further. I think it's being forgotten. I think people are talking about Gaza now, and I find that even we Israelis sometimes have to remind ourselves, it's been five weeks, we have to remind ourselves of the unspeakable horror that unfolded there. And if we have to sometimes remind ourselves, because we're focused on, unfortunately, going to too many funerals and being worried about, you know, in my case, kids in the army and other people's neighbors and da 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 certainly people outside have to be have to be reminded of it so the story is changing you're right there's no question so so i'll tell you i'll tell you the following things that, that are in my mind as a military people who are very focused on the mission that we've been given by the government is to destroy and dismantle hamas and make sure this thing never happens again we have to create a certain emotional disconnect and uh, when i talk think about the humanitarian assistance to me it's an operational tool and what am i trying to say is if I understand that we will need international backing for this, mainly from America. And I'm saying now to the public in all sorts of ways that the, the humanitarian assistance is an operational tool for us to destroy Hamas. Why? Because we need time to do it. This war is a, is a different ballgame. It's not like we, what we were used to, which is going in two weeks, three weeks. This is going to take a long time. That's why we need that umbrella of diplomatic support and that's why we're doing the humanitarian assistance beyond the fact that it meets our Jewish values and again of course uh, I'm also aware of the critics will say okay you have Kfir Bibas a nine year old baby that is installed in every Israeli's heart that red that redhead kid together with his sister who is a hostage right now how does that meet international standards but we are doing what we're doing so we can destroy Hamas. We're not fighting the people of Gaza. When I think about my messaging, it's saying we're not fighting the people of Gaza. They are victims too. We're fighting Hamas. We need to do everything we can to meet international standard. That means telling the people to move south so we can suffocate Hamas in the north. We'll do it also in the south. But the humanitarian assistance will buy the IDF the time we need to accomplish this mission. And again, it's a different ballgame. It's a war right now on multiple fronts. It's not only in Gaza. Although our focus is in Gaza, you can see that we're being poked also from the, the north and also from the far southeast. So the north is Lebanon. The north is also Syria these days. Yes. Far southeast is Yemen. We're also being poked uh, in Judea and Samaria. I mean, it's getting very hot there. So we're fighting a war on four or five fronts already. That's before Iran or anybody else decides to, and Hezbollah in any meaningful way, decides to get involved. And so this is, so the humanitarian aid you're saying is the right thing to do. It's the Jewish thing to do because we're fighting Hamas and not the people of Gaza. But it also serves a actual military purpose in buying us the time that we need to do, that we need in order to do what we need to do to Hamas. Correct. What does this humanitarian aid look like? We see on the news, we see pictures of trucks. By the way, we all, I'd love to hear you say, because we're hearing on the news, people like me who are just, you know, regular old people, um, that they bring, they, the trucks come in with big, huge tanks of gas, because the trucks need gas, but they don't need as much gas as they actually have in the trucks. So they were hearing stories of Hamas actually siphoning off gas out of the trucks that are part of the convoys, so that in bringing in the humanitarian aid, where people say, I don't know if it's true, we're actually giving Hamas gas. So what are we bringing in, and what are the downsides to all of this? So I'll give you the nitty-gritty and how the mechanics of it work, because this is important. Okay, okay great. The, the, the specific truck, and again, I'm not, right now we're not putting in gas 
to Gaza at this point. Why? Because we, we, were, we showed in our media that the, the Hamas still has silos and they, have, they still have fuel. They're running out of it. We know, we're aware that it's an issue. But right now, the humanitarian assistance is mainly food and medical equipment. Now, what, is this, what are the mechanics of this? The truck basically first arrives at an Israeli crossing called Nitsana, where it's being scanned to see that there's no weapons on it, that there's no things that we, equipment that we didn't agree on that will go in, that it meets the standards of food or medical equipment that can't be mobilized to be turned into war equipment or warfare equipment. Once it's scanned, it moves through uh, the Egyptian uh, roads all the way to the Rafah crossing, which is an Egyptian crossing. And from there it goes into Gaza, into one of the international entities inside Gaza, logistic entities, and, for the, and then it goes into the public. That's Are how we works. guarding these trucks while they're in Egypt? No. So how do we know they're not putting things so on the trucks? So we're using our intelligence capabilities to make sure that no one puts stuff on them en route from Nitsana. We can to Rafah. To Rafah. That the, these, that we're, we're monitoring these that movement, and uh, so that's one one channel of the of the movement of the equipment. On the other hand, uh, when we talk about the the people that we've basically asked for the last month to, and we've pleaded them to move south again, based on international law, please move south, south of Wadi Gaza. Not only saying to them move south, and we stalled our our ground offensive for them to evacuate from that area. We've also, while the, this fighting is going on, opened humanitarian corridors, in, or we, we call them tactical pauses, that we basically are saying on this route and on this route, mainly the Salah Hadin, the main route in Gaza, and also time, sometimes the Al-Rashid Road, for them to move south. And we'll say on these time frames, between 10 and 2, we won't attack. And we're taking also a risk here, because it could be also Hamas people moving south. All right. And uh, not only that, after discussing this with the administration in the U.S., there's certain tactical pauses also in specific areas in the north. So the, we've got the movement, we've got them us asking them to move with, with leaflets that we're, we're flying on our social media, everything we can for them to move. And we've also uh, taken a geographical zone on the coast and called it a, hum a humanitarian zone. It's in the area called the Muasi which is basically the coastline of Khan Yunis, where that's a safety zone for Gazans to, uh, that have left the north to be. So we've done everything possible, Daniel, to make sure that we have the civilians out of there. Okay, so one form of humanitarian aid is, well, first of all, humanitarian action is getting the civilians out. Yeah. Making a corridor, place where they can go, I'm sure it's not an ideal place. It's a war zone. It's a horrible thing. But yes, then the, the food is coming in, Nitsana, Rafah, up to the south, I assume, not to the north, right? Only to the south where yes. we're encouraging them to go. And then medical equipment. Um, there's a lot of other things happening, too. I mean, Sahal is providing, the IDF is providing, let's talk about Shifa Hospital, right? Today's Shifa Hospital is very much in the news. The IDF is clearly very, very close to Shifa Hospital, if not at Shifa Hospital. There are all sorts of rumors in the press that patients are going to be start taking out soon. We'll see what happens or doesn't happen. But you're saying that we're actually trying to help the hospital run in the meantime, right? So, first of all, we're saying to 
Hamas, it's your responsibility to take people out. It was their responsibility for the last four weeks. They are embedded in these hospitals. That's the cynicism of that enemy. Uh, we are totally aware of the sensitivity of these hospitals. We're in the outskirts of these hospitals. We still haven't decided what we're going to do yet. But again, we'll, we'll act based on every caution we can to make sure that the people that are right now in the hospitals, and again, there's people that are like incubators or people that are connected to um, air machines that can't breathe. ECMOs or whatever. ECMOs, yeah. That's things that we're, we're really into the weeds of understanding and we're communicating with the hospital. Our COGAT uh, organization is talking directly to the to the the manager of the the Shifa hospital. And it's very complicated because he can't also burn himself in front of Hamas because right. he's also afraid of Hamas. And you know, also sometimes when these corridors or people are moving, Hamas might fire at his own people because they don't care about their people. But we'll see videos of that online. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll stop coming. the convoys, they'll fire at their people. There's an event in Rantisi that I saw on social network, I don't know if it's true or not, that there was firing there and people ran back into the hospital. It wasn't us. Well, obviously it wasn't us. Right, so for example, what are we doing to help the hospital keep going? So the, the, the issue there is energy. It's a very, very um, high-level decision issue. Because a lot of times the energy or the generators will be using also for a civilian uh, installation, but also could be used for the tunnels and for their... So if there's generators at Shifa Hospital, they're using it to keep the hospital running. Dual use. But the Hamas people are also siphoning it off and they're using it for their tunnels and whatever. Potentially. And so what are we doing to enable the hospital to keep functioning? Because if I understand correctly, there really is a shortage now of, of, of gas. Is that correct? Yes. So we're, we're engaging with the, with the hospital. We're aware of this. I think that you might see solutions in the upcoming 24 hours, but that's way, way over my pay grade, Daniel. It's, but okay. it's being handled at the highest levels of government. Okay. So the humanitarian issue is because it's Jewish values that, to remind ourselves, first of all, we're not fighting the Gazan people, we're fighting Hamas. And number two, it actually serves us is in a military way because it's going to hopefully extend the timeline, at least of the Americans, in terms of how long they're going to let us keep at this. Now, you said there's a minute or two ago, this is going to be a long war, right? I mean, we nobody knows how long it's going to be, but months, perhaps, months and months. Uh, is your sense that the American patients can run that long? If we, if we keep doing what I said before, which where we're making sure that we try and minimize collateral damage and make sure that humanitarian assistance is uh, ongoing, I think we'll have the the diplomatic time to complete our mission and again this is something that we have an obligation to do even you know i'm not i'm not the man to talk about uh, the diplomatic uh, uh, umbrella but i i can tell that we're very determined at least at the military level to finish the mission you know i, I was down there in gaza i saw the commanders the israeli public is mobilized to make sure this thing never happens again yeah there's it's wall-to-wall -wall support wall-to-wall I mean, there's literally almost nobody in Israel saying anything about stopping because of the civilian casualties, which are real and are painful and so forth. But I mean, I'm seeing it everywhere. Just wall-to-wall -wall support. Do this and do it absolutely. There was an interview this morning, a father who tragically lost his son over the course of the weekend, um, saying that he said to the prime minister, when the prime minister called him because they know each other from a previous lifetime, uh, he said, if you, if you win, if you destroy Hamas, then my son didn't die in vain. 
and I, we've all been to too many funerals, um, I think a lot of these parents will feel that if we don't do it, then God forbid their children, it's going to be harder to say they didn't die in vain. So that in order to keep people feel that whatever sacrifices were made were sacrifices and not waste, which is two very different kinds of things, uh, this has to go all the way all the way to the end. Now, you're talking about the American, the American timeline, and you believe, and I hope you're right, that by doing all of these humanitarian steps, we can keep that timeline extended sufficiently for the men and women in the field to do what they need to do to destroy Hamas completely. Um, let's talk about the Americans in general. Americans have been unbelievably supportive. I can tell you that I, as a, you know, a former, former American, or I'm still American technically, but you know, used to live in America, I found President Biden's speeches, in fact, the one that was more off the cuff even more so, unbelievably moving. This was not Joe Biden reading a teleprompter. Now, this was a Joe Biden who has lost a wife, who has lost a son, who's had tremendous tragedy in his own personal life. Whatever one thinks about him politically is irrelevant for right now. Um, you could feel that when he talked to the families of the people who were slaughtered on October 7th, this was Joe Biden, the human being, understanding something about the history of the Jewish people. He's that age. He's one of those Democrats who still gets it. Um, he, he knew Golda. He knew Robin. He knew all these people. Um, and he was dealing, he, he, felt, he felt our pain. I mean, that sounds trivial or trite, but it, he really, really did. Um, so there's a great story about America and Israel here in terms of what, what lifelong allies really do for each other. But there's an underbelly here that I want to ask you about because I hear it being said all the time. What we're saying, what I hear people saying is, oh, it's great. I mean, he was really amazing and he came and it was genuine. And to have the two aircraft carrier groups, not just the aircraft carriers, but the aircraft carrier groups out there is very helpful. But people are saying, but wait a minute, does that actually mean that this is a war in which Israel actually can't defend itself. That's if the aircraft carriers turn around and went home, wherever home is, they don't really go home. But if the aircraft carriers turn around and left the Mediterranean, that we wouldn't be able to actually take care of ourselves? Is the, is the step that America took actually an indication, not only of friendship, but of Israeli vulnerability that we weren't aware of? What, what should people understand about that? First of all, I'd like to amplify what you said about the president. I mean, for us, I mean, I remember when he made that speech, the, the whole office here, the whole building here stopped in awe and really sensed that authenticity of uh, the president. And, uh, you know, I'm speaking to my American counterparts. You can feel it all the way down to my counterparts, all the way down to the military officers. Not, I mean, there's, to me right now, personally, there's two... Heroes. One is the, the the president, and also Mr. John Kirby. I mean, him also. His he gave a spiel uh, on CNN, or I don't remember, and it was so powerful, so powerful. I mean, you, you can see that man really cares and is devoted to the state of Israel and and the our German freedom. Chancellor also, by the way. Yeah, gave yeah. an amazing speech. Yeah, a lot. I mean, uh, I think that the the support at the beginning was uh, dramatic. Also, the British Foreign Secretary right. uh, James Cleverly. I think the Americans, who's someone who's worked with the American administration in many angles, I think they understood that this is something different. Not, not. not I think we can we can hold the fight uh, if it's against Hezbollah and against Gaza, but they understood that the the scale of this could uh, and scope of this could have a regional international implication beyond Israel now fighting Gaza or doing a tit-for-tat with Lebanon. You're seeing it. You're seeing the RGC moving from Iraq and, you know, influencing. This has given a lot... It could potentially give a lot of inspiration for a lot of these jihadis 
to say, okay, now is the time for us to fight the West. This, you know, I mean, it was they had a very successful event. I mean, you could see it. It was like an ISIL-style attack. I mean, you, you saw what happened in Raqqa and Mosul. I mean, that's that's a sort of theme that was at the beginning. And this, you know, the inspiration. Think a look at the inspiration ISIL had. So I think America was smart enough to think, okay, this is not just Israel now. With with uh, they can handle Gaza and Lebanon, but this could expand to something much bigger. And you're seeing the riots in Paris and London. You're seeing a dynamic also in Iran. You're seeing it's it's a chess game. It's not just a regular tactical round. Uh, and the fact that the American brought the, the the elephant, the juggernaut of American shadow, came over here, it meant a lot to us. It's not that we can't deal with it alone, but having our ally here saying we've got your back, um, I'll never forget it. A, 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 a real hard moment for the state of Israel. I mean, this 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 is a biblical scale event. Right, it is actually biblical. It's a biblical scale event. You know, we're calling it already the Second Independence War. There's, there's this is something that's changed, that will change everything. But America at that moment, they just came in full force. It's something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. It's very moving. What do you think this war is going to be called 10 years from now? I know the theme will be the second war of independence. It's a wake-up call for the state of Israel. You know, I always ask myself, I, ask my, I have two mentors in life. Uh, actually one one of my strongest mentors is a very smart Haredi man from uh, New Jersey and I always ask him Ma, what's the lesson here what's he trying to teach us God um, the story of our togetherness as a nation what, I mean there's, there's something here which is, is there's a there's a strong Jewish biblical feeling right now in, in the state of Israel so we have a war that we call Milchemet Lebanon Shnia, right? The Second Lebanon War. That's a name that's commonly used. I think this is going to be called Milchemet Atzmot Shnia. Ulai. Ulai. It become the Second Independence it's like a, War. It's also because uh, you think about all the Jewish nations. How long did we survive for? Seventy-five years. Seventy-five, eighty. Very... So maybe it's our second one. Saying, okay, the God is saying, so you don't fall again as a nation. So the first time in the first uh, in the first Commonwealth. Until we were exiled by Babylonia, we lasted as a unified nation, sovereign, unified, about 74 or 5 years. The second time, from a certain period of the Maccabeans until the sons of Shlom Tzion was about 75 years again. And what you're saying is, the first state of Israel lasted 75 years. And on the 75th year, a new state of Israel is, is, is arising from the ashes of Kibbutz Be'eri and Kfar Aza, and it's changed... People in Tel Aviv and in Haifa and in everywhere. So you're saying it might even be called the Second War of Independence Maybe. because something new is being born here. Maybe it's I mean. not going to be called Milchemet Simchat Torah. It feels to me like it can't be called the Simchat Torah War. The Yom Kippur War makes sense because Yom Kippur somehow goes with that. Um, anyway, it's just an aside, but it'll be very interesting. I think it'll say a lot about this country and this people and the memory of the of the people who are living through this in terms of how we refer back to it. But would be an unbelievable thing to call it the second war of independence it would provide us with a tremendous sense of perspective about the work that we have to do we have to build this over yes I think uh, when we look back at what happened here in the streets of Tel Aviv and Kaplan and the, un the civil unrest I think uh, God is uh, again I'm going over my uh, your theological pay grade my theological <laughs> pay grade but um, my good friend in uh, Tianic, New Jersey, uh, he'll say uh, we have to be together as a nation and united. 
So when I, I want to end on one more painful thing, and I know your time is very busy. I, there's hundreds of young kids in green right out there needing your attention and lots of work to do. I want to talk about this 47-minute um, movie that journalists have seen that so far is not out, although it's very hard to imagine that digital files don't get out eventually anyway. I was actually just talking to somebody in shul yesterday, and it's very interesting how people think about it. I said to him, uh, yeah, it's going to get out. And I frankly hope it will get out because I think people should see, those who want to, should see the absolute unspeak. I've never seen it personally, but the unspeakable horror of what transpired. And he said, I hope it never gets out because if it gets out, my children will see it. Nothing I do to stop it will stop my children from seeing it. And I do not want my children to see it. And I, I can understand that. I mean, I, it's, yeah. and I saw a, a note this morning from the Israeli psychological health, health, office, yeah. health office saying if it does get out do not watch it because you can never unsee what you'll see so we're talking about things one can only imagine i'm sure you've seen it many times yeah um what should we know about this movie i don't mean whether it should be released or not released what can you tell us without violating anything that you can't say that will give people an idea of the utter horror of what transpired beyond what we're already becoming numb to so before the movie, again, I, I was on a surge when this thing happened to show the, the international press what happened here, the scale of, of the horror. And um, it wasn't, it, to me, it was, a, it was a methodology of taking them through the sites, just like Eisenhower took the press through Bergen-Belsen. That, to me, Kvaraza was our Bergen, you know, and again, I don't like doing the comparison, but the, the scale of horror and massacre was just uncomprehendable. I still have guilt. I have my assistant outside who, because I was so focused, a 19-year-old girl from uh, Ramata Sharon, she saw everything with me. She's a different person after she saw this. A different person. She's really grown up. I don't know in a good way or not, but, you know. You know, but like, wait, I'll say, I don't think I'm violating his confidence by saying this. Our son was called up the Saturday night that it happened. Now, he was in a commando unit way back when. Um, but in addition to everything else, he's also a medic. So they didn't need the commander unit at that point. They needed a lot of medics because they were hearing stories about horrible injuries yeah. and they called everybody up. He actually never got sent in. He was at a Shatah Yisuf, one of the places okay. where they keep them all. But he was there that Saturday night when soldiers started to come back from the south and they just had a talk. And they were talking to each other. I, He's not the same man. He's a, he's a grown-up. He's married. He's yeah. got two children. He's never been the same since then. He didn't even see anything. Of that. He didn't see the movie, and he hasn't been down there. But he heard soldiers who were there talking about what they saw. I can tell you, it's, it's 37, 30, whatever the number of days later. He's, I'm actually worried about him. I mean, um, I mean, now he's out there also, so I'm worried about him in a different kind of a way. But something happened to him, like this 19-year-old woman that you're talking outside here. Something happened. There's things that we're not meant to see. Yes. I'll Anything that you want our under audience to know about this movie? That so I'll tell you about the movie. So after after they saw, uh, just one thing, you know, when when I when when we walked into these places, people were asking about decapitated babies, right? For us Jews, these are we don't we don't we don't parade, just like Hamas, our bodies. But you know, I, I, at the end of the week, I took everybody to Shura, the rabbinite, because we understood that we, the scale of this is something, and the, the country couldn't deal with civilian casualties. The IDF took control of everything. And we were going to see, there's a location that they opened, the Rabbinite Core, that were also taking care of civilians. And we had like cargo of, of body parts. Yeah, by the way, for our listeners, we actually put up a video that was done 
by Channel 12 Khan, an interview with two of the soldiers and one of the rabbis and psychologists who are there. So if you've been following us for a while, you can go back also in the archive and see it, but there's a beautiful, beautiful interview with Yair Ettinger, who's mm -hmm. the interviewer, and uh, a guy named Josh, I won't say his last name, because they don't put it on there, uh, who's one of the, he's an emergency room doctor in his real life, and they worked there for weeks already. So the, our listeners know what Shura is, in theory. But a very, a very strong Jewish moment for me was, I, you know, I, I made a momentary mistake, because I know the press, the, the, the press was saying, oh, show us, show us. And the, 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 the holy rabbi is doing that work in Shura, and I have a very close friend of mine who's a retired colonel. I said, open the bag. I want them to see. And he said, Richard, we don't do that. So I, that's, where, that's the point where, where we said no. So the movie also was a dilemma where we were going to take them to see like, a, like Hollywood. Right. So I, I, had to, I had to present it in a smart way and say, okay, this is something we don't like doing, but we, ha we feel that we have a necessity to show you because you won't believe us. That's what basically I said to everyone. And it wasn't, it was raw movies, made a lot of it from home cameras and GoPros. That Hamas were wearing. That Hamas were wearing. It shows that they, you know, they were, they were proud of it. But there's one shot in that movie, which I'll, I think to me, it kept me awake for a week. Um, it was a father and his home camera, which basically the, 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 the siren start. Was his security camera in his house? In his, inside his living room. Uh -huh. And you can see the father in, in underwear grabbing his two little boys out and running out because it was Teva Adom, it was like red, red alert because they thought it was just mortars. So you see him running out and he didn't know at the time that was, there was also just cover for the terrorists to come in for their synchronized attack. So you see him running out, taking his two boys to the to outside. They had a, a little uh, protected area outside of the house. And then you go to the camera outside of the house and you see the father running in. At some point, you see a terrorist looking into the protected house where the dad is in the tube, and he throws a grenade. The father beside his boys jumps on the grenade. The two boys, one of them probably with his eye, one of his eyes out or severely injured, they walk out screaming over their dead, their father's dead body, and they run back into the living room, and they, they're. they're and his bigger brother, again, a 10-year-old, maybe an 8-year-old, trying to take care of his brother. What happened to you? And he's pouring water. And, dad, 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 dad died. And the most horrific moment in that film. And again, you see films here of terrorists killing people, slaughtering people with hose. All, all the most horrific. But the, 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 there was a minute where these two boys were sitting in the living room in their underwear. And you see a, a Nukba terrorist walking into the house. With that, you, you could just see how cool he was. Looking at the boys, with totally disconnected to the boy, the boys were screaming. He walked into the house, looked at them with very cold, cold-hearted eyes, opened the fridge and took a started drinking coke, and just casually walked out. To me, that was a horrific moment, and again, just a taste of that movie. Of the horror there, of of, of massacre, of, of um, and and also you saw the response of the people in the. But again, it's something we feel uncomfortable doing, Daniel. No. We we don't do that. Oh, of course not. We don't do that as Jews. But the, the, I'll never forget that, and we'll get to that guy. I'm saying I, I know that the IDF will get to every single one of these people, and we'll hunt them all down.
as long as it takes. Because we're hunting but, you. But in the end, but but in the end, there's a family there. You can, there's also in that minute, they sh- they show the the, the outside camera the mum arriving and seeing the body of her husband in pieces. I don't think that can go out to the public. Look, what everybody's doing here, uh, you talked about the people that were doing the holy work at Shura. Um, yeah, I mean, taking care of those bodies with the rabbis and the psychologists and the soldiers. There's archaeologists there. And archaeologists who know how to search for pieces. I mean, it's unbelievable. That's holy work. I think it's fair to say that our sons and daughters who are out there in Gaza, even as you and I are having this conversation, is really holy work. Uh, but so is your work. Because having the world understand what we're fighting against and the, the depravity uh, that characterizes Hamas, and hopefully we'll be able to say soon, characterized Hamas, uh, which has to be destroyed so that people here can live a normal life. Um, it's a very hard story to tell, and you are you are um, at the forefront of telling that story to the international world. I can tell you from all of the people that I speak to all the time across the world, the, the work that you're doing is held in exceedingly high regard. People have an enormous amount of admiration for the way that you're doing what you're doing. So. Thank you for on all behalf of behalf of all of us for what you're doing in general, and, and thank you for taking this time today, uh, so that we can help more more people understand what you're doing and what the state of Israel is up against, and over what God willing the state of Israel will soon be victorious. By the way, I feel that I'm failing every day. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're not. <laughs> Thanks again. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.